Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. And for 13 years, we've been from 9 to 10 a.m. But today, today only, 8 a.m., 8 to 9. And that's because Bulldogs are coming on later on. And hey, got to make room for our beloved dogs. And um, today we have a special guest in the studio. Uh, he is an attorney. I want to warn you, but you know, uh, <laughs> well, I better watch out with the attorney jokes, right? Because <laughs> there, there's the the new one are going to be realtor jokes. But anyway, Louis Coronado, who specializes in landlord tenant law. Good morning, Louis. Good morning, Don. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. And a lot of questions out there because things are changing. Yes, they are. Yeah. In fact, I would like to ask you if you could give us the basics of landlord-tenant law. Let's go back 25, 30 years ago. Um, what was it like back then? Um, w were the laws a lot different? Well, yeah, I would say that and it's probably more recently the, uh, the area of landlord-tenant law has kind of shifted more towards the tenant uh, side of things, certainly in the rent control. We had laws passed recently in, in 2019 that made it more difficult to uh, terminate agreements as well as uh, raising rents. Um, certainly the time frame in which the process takes to deal with problem tenants has uh, been expanded to, I guess, benefit the tenants in that situation. But So those are the basic changes that, that I have seen. I've only been practicing just about that long, so I don't know exactly how it was prior to that. Mm -hmm. and, and I would think that when you go into the courts, are, are the judges more lenient now towards the tenants or, or do they still follow the law? Well, you know, I'm an attorney, so I have to see these judges every day. So they're all great people, Don. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Having said that, I think judges are people, and they, they have various backgrounds and various sympathies, but they're all required to apply the law evenly, and most try to do that. But there are times when you can get uh, what appears to be a judge who's stronger one direction or the other. And of course, me representing mostly landlords, I like the judges that lean more towards the landlords. I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick stories on that. So uh, this is, would be back in the 90s. I, I was in court uh, trying to evict somebody for non-payment of rent. And the tenant actually showed up and they went on and on about how the house was a rat trap and it was the, the roof leaked. By the way, it was in July. <laughs> um, they were just coming up with everything. And the judge just kept saying, have you paid your rent? And then they would go on about how, you know, accusing me of not returning calls. And the judge said, have you paid your rent? Finally, the guy said, no. He said, thank you. Judgment for the plaintiff. <laughs> so, so that's a judge that has probably been around the block and knows, okay, it, these are the excuses of why people don't pay the rent. And I think the fact that I was there shows that I was responsive. So it, it was a, a lot of baloney about me not returning calls. <laughs> right. You know, the, the, any, the classic eviction typically involves a 
tenant not paying rent. And one of the defenses that a tenant can raise is habitability. And, and there are, unfortunately, situations where perhaps a landlord has not been as diligent <clears throat> as he should have been. And if that is found to be the case, a judge could, you know, if a gentleman happens to owe one or two months, the judge could uh, assess uh, the rent to be at a little bit less to reflect the actual conditions of the premises. But unfortunately, I think that's a defense that's often used as a crying wolf and that you don't really hear about these complaints about the condition of the premises until the tenant is brought before the court. And all of a sudden, all these claims that the landlord had not heard about come to the surface. So, yeah, it's, it's something that can be a used abuse, excuse me, on both sides, this habitability issue. Mm-hmm. I had another case, and this is where I think the judge kind of had a soft spot for the tenants. Um, the the Tenants had moved out and uh, did not leave me a key. Just they quit community. They just moved out. And so I charged them for cleaning and stuff off their deposit, including rekeying the house because I had to get a locksmith there to open it up for me. He would not allow that. The judge said, you as a landlord have to rekey every time someone moves out for their safety. And, um, I, he gave everything else, yeah. but he took off the $75 for that. Yeah, I mean, probably when it came right down to it, you were entitled to that, but the chances of pilling that or even trying to pill it and the cost of the expense, you're just better off taking your lumps and, you know, live to fight another day. The way I look at it, it was a paper loss because I got a piece of paper, a judgment saying this guy owes you $2,000. That doesn't mean I collected it. <laughs> That's true. I mean, in any judgment out of an eviction case, more so than a monetary judgment out of any other case, you, you've got to remember that what you're doing is this is someone who's just probably lost their residence. So they, you're probably the last expense that he's failed to pay. So you, the likelihood of collecting any judgment is probably going to be a long time before you know mm. that happens. Then I remember back in the early 2000s, the state of California decided that you know, we need to help out the tenants a little bit more. So they changed a law instead of the, they, and they mandated that uh, tenants who have been in a home more than a year have to give a 60-day notice, or, or excuse me, for the landlord to terminate them is a 60-day notice. The tenants only has to give 30. Seemed a little unfair. One side 30 days, the other side 60 days. But that's where the courts, I think, or not the courts, the legislature started moving that way. Right. I, I think I heard that that had come out of a situation in the Bay Area where a large corporate landlord supposedly in recently purchasing a property just went through and basically gave notices to everybody. And so, I mean, that, that, that law doesn't get triggered until the tenant has been there you know, within a year, after a year rather. So I think the logic of the legislature was that if you're going to have a problem tenant and you need to get rid of him, that probably should happen within the first year. Otherwise, if he's been there for more than a year, you know, the chances are things are probably going to work out okay. So you should give him 60 days notice. Yeah, but uh, and, and here, um, here's an example. I had some people that rented from me for a couple, three years. Perfect tenants. In fact, I used to love to drive by the house because they took care of the yard so well. I was, I was proud of it. It's like, yeah, that, that's my, my home, my property there. And they were doing great. They would pay the rent on time. They were nice and respectful to me. And always, whenever we talked, they would always chat for a little bit. 
And then it changed. This is after about two or three years. Um, all of a sudden, the yard didn't look so good. A couple of checks bounced. It, it, things weren't going quite the same. And what happened? They were good people, but then life changed. They got divorced, and they were no longer together, and um, they, they ended up, for, fortunate for me, they made the decision to leave before it got really bad, as opposed to making me get getting so bad that I had to ask them to leave. Right. So, so yeah. they went out with dignity. Yeah. I mean, my experience has been that, yeah, nobody plans to be evicted. Usually you're going to find that it's, it's related to family dissolution or some sort of major medical problems or loss of income. But, uh, yeah, and, and, then, and then, of course, the worst thing that most tenants do or don't do, in fact, is communicate with a landlord. How many times have I heard my clients say, if, if they just told me what was going on, I'd be willing to work with them. But, you know, I, I suppose it's kind of a human nature response that when things start going south, you just kind of bury your head in the sand, so to speak, hoping it goes away. But uh, actually, it's the opposite that's true. Yeah. Communication is so important, um, and it's also a show of respect to the other side that, that you have an agreement with. You know, here, the landlord, and I think we need to call it a housing provider rather than a landlord. Landlord goes back to the, the feudal days, right? That's right. Um, they're putting up a $200,000 property given you possession of it in return for a promise of monthly payments. Both sides have to do their thing. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the idea of a contract and, and what that's supposed to mean has kind of been tested in the last uh, year, I suppose, where, you know, in, in trying to deal with what now is a social problem, we've kind of said, well, you know, these contracts shouldn't necessarily be enforced you know, to the letter that, uh, property owners now are more kind of a social service provider in, in times of pandemic, if you will, and, and that maybe they should be the ones who should shoulder the obligation of dealing with societal's problem of what are we going to do with all these folks who don't have the money to pay. So there's a lot of folks who have opinions on both sides of this issue, and some feel that the government should have stepped in and, and at least further subsidized the owners to help pay for this social program. And, of course, the others who just flat out feel that, you know, let the tenant stay there for as long as you like you know, until this pandemic goes away without any provision to offset certainly the financial hardship that the owners are going through. That's interesting what you just said. Here I said we, ch we should change the name to a housing provider, and you said some of them look at it as a social service provider. Oh, I do see the... Well, that's, uh, the, that's true. I mean, anytime there's some sort of national, you, got, you have FEMA in time of a national emergency, they come and they do just about everything. Well, we, we don't see that happening here in regards to the housing crisis that we have here. Here, it's like what they're saying is, no, if you own that house and you happen to be renting it out and you have a mortgage on it, that's too bad. You've got to let that person stay for free because you're helping out the better cause. And, and I think a lot of owners might do that anyways, and a lot of them have, and they've worked with these folks in this case because from a business standpoint, it makes sense to keep that person there because you can evict them right now if you like, but who are you going to get in there? So mm -hmm. better off to you know, dance with the person you've got than uh, you know, not knowing who else you're going to bring in. Yeah, my grandmother used to always say, you know who you have, you don't know who you're going to get. 
And with that, we got to go to our first commercial break. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And visiting with us today is Louis Coronado. He is a real estate attorney uh, specializing in unlawful detainers, also known as landlord-tenant law. So we were talking about the basics of it in the first segment and, and what it was like 25, 30 years ago. Let's go to now with COVID. COVID has changed a lot of, uh, lot of the laws or, or, and, and, and the rights that people have. Can you give us the basics of that, Louie? Yeah, I mean, COVID has been taking up most of my days lately. I probably get seven or eight calls from desperate property owners trying to figure out how, how do they go from here. And the basics are that depending on how your property is owned, where it is located, whether it has a federally insured mortgage, whether you've gotten a forbearance on it, whether it's multifamily, the answer to how do I proceed with someone who's not paying rent changes. Um, so I'm going to preface this with, you know, consult an attorney. This is just a broad summary of what it's like. But generally speaking, the state legislature in, in September 1 rolled out the policy where any non-paying tenant uh, has to be given a 15-day notice. Um, that 15-day notice, there's two different types. It depends on whether the rent was pre-August 31st or September 1 and after. They have to be put in their own separate notices. Um, once you get that notice out, you have to send it out there with a blank COVID hardship declaration. You have to send it out with a two-page notice to the tenant explaining the whole COVID law and what their rights are. Once that's served, if they get you that signed declaration back within that 15 days, you are done. You cannot do anything else with them until perhaps as soon as January 31st of 2021. Only in the rare situation where the tenant has failed to give you that declaration could you at that point go ahead and file the eviction. Uh, it's a 15-day. You don't count uh, court holidays and things like that, so it's really almost a three-week process. But um, there, that's a, we're still doing those type of evictions, um, but they're very rare. Well, now I'm confused, so I guess that's why we call you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's also a lucrative time for me, too, unfortunately. Um, yeah, the law has, is sufficiently complicated. Um, basically, uh, probably the best thing I could t advise anybody is that if you've got someone who's not paying rent, um, give me a call, and, and I'll try to give you the answer that applies to your situation. There's uh, The city of Fresno has its own ordinance that applies um, as well, so you have to be careful of that. And it actually applies to commercial properties as well that prevents uh, certain evictions going forward when there is a COVID hardship. CARES Act, which is the federal law, has uh, its own requirements. So we have to you know, make sure we, we go through these things uh, carefully because they do have provisions that if you proceed on an eviction in violation of these statutes that you could be subject to some pretty serious financial penalties. Wow. So, okay, so it, uh, if a tenant has no uh, implicate or, or, or ramifications from COVID, they, they did not lose their job or their income, they have to pay. Am I correct? Well, they have to sign a declaration 
that that lists out about seven different issues relating to COVID, and probably one of them says that, yeah, I've either incurred expenses or have lost income or something to that effect. It's, that declaration is under penalty of perjury, so if they understand what that means and, and they sign it, uh, but there's no requirement to provide any supporting documentation whatsoever. So it's a bit easy of a hurdle for a tenant to, to uh, overcome on their road to not being able, having to pay any rent. So. Mm-hmm. so the landlord has to give, if they don't collect rent, the landlord has to give this notice to the tenant who then has to turn it, that 15-day notice form. Right. The, the California Apartment Association has done an excellent <clears throat> job in putting all these documents into paper, into hard paper. And if you happen to own uh, several properties, it's probably worth the money to become a member of them and also have access to these forms. But yeah, it's basically a package. A 15-day notice rent package includes the demand for the rent, this blank declaration that gets served along with it, and then this two-page form that kind of summarizes what the law is. All that goes out to the tenant with that demand for rent. And then if you get that 15-day, excuse me, if you get the signed declaration back, that's it. You cannot do anything else until January 31. So in theory, the landlord could go months and months and months and collect zero. And have gone months. And this is after, and this is after... This was put in place in September 1. you got to remember that the tenants have been allowed to stay there since March 1st. That's right. So March through September 1st, it was even worse, right? Yeah, that's the first That's first of the two types of 15-day uh, notices. So you've got one for the rent accrued during that period, and then if, it, <clears throat> if they continue not to pay the rent, there's a separate 15-day notice that covers a period from September 1 to January 31st. So, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is this, and this is the strategy if you're asking what I would advise a landlord, because to me, I believe that it's very simple for a tenant, wrongfully or rightfully, to sign that declaration, get it back, and they're protected. So what are the methods that a landlord can use to effectively get this rent in? Now, I have had landlords call me where the tenant hasn't paid since March, and it's very likely that they're going to pay you in response to any kind of notification for the next three months. Then I've got the landlord who the tenant you know, God bless him, has been able to pay something all along, or maybe all of it, but just all of a sudden now has fallen behind this last month. I prob- I usually congratulate him saying they're doing an excellent job because compared to most other people, you're, you're in a lot better situation. And this 15-day noticing, it's kind of expensive to get out there, and it's, again, it's a very low hurdle to jump over. So I just, cont- uh, my advice typically is just to have the landlord continue what he's been doing because he's been doing a great job getting rent up until that time. So whatever method he's been using, he should continue using it in formal processes. You know, it's not probably going to enhance the relationship. All of a sudden you send this six-page document to your tenant. You know, he might, it might just, you know, upset the apple cart, so to speak. So I, I try to say, use, use the, th- the same methodology that you've used so far. You know this tenant better than anybody else. So just try to mm-hmm. stay the course. And communication is first, foremost, that's the foundation uh, of any business relationship. You're right. Yeah, like I said before, I mean, you know, unfortunately, tenants tend to circle the wagons and clam up when things go south. So, yeah, you have to use whatever means to try to find out what's going on because it's probably from a financial standpoint. If you've got someone who's only a month or two behind, it's probably better to work out some sort of agreement and, 
maybe they don't catch up right now. And, and as long as they can pay you something and stay current from this point going forward, that's, I think, I mean, you know this better than I do. You're the, you're the actual landlord. I just advise you guys. Mm. But I think a strategy where you can just maintain some sort of cash flow is much better than having to pay someone like me $1,200 and it'll take two months to get somebody out. I, I can't see how that is a, a benefit. Yeah. Every time I've had an eviction, I end up losing. And it, and it's, although I will say this, the $1,200 or so for uh, attor- uh, attorney and court fees the, is well worth it because that's usually about a month's worth of rent somewhere in there. And um, you were going to lose that anyway because it would have taken longer. Yeah. A lot of landlords will come to you where they've they have been trying to work with a tenant, but after you know, one or two months, you know, then the, then the uh, calculus turns differently, and it's, it is uh, more of a cost advantage to go forward yeah. with the eviction. It, and then anything that a- ends uh, or has bad closure usually gets worse, too. Um, I had one where um, uh, when, when I w- went back into the house for the first time, they had maliciously broken things. you know the the glass on the oven door now how does that break yeah i mean either they're extremely clumsy or perhaps they were trying to send a message to the landlord saying that they didn't Uh, like the way the things ended i i go with that second one (laughs) (laughs) you know the funny thing is um i showed up with some cash in my pocket i was going to give it to them just to help them out um but when I saw all the, you know, the bathroom mirror was broken it, maliciously. You know, I mean, it wasn't just a little crack. It was smashed. And it's like, nah, that cash stays in my pocket to pay for this stuff. So, um, well, let can, me, let me interrupt you real quick. Cause all you talking about the cash thing, I forgot to tell you that, you know, rather than going through all these various type of notices and because you can also evict when you have good cause aside from rent issues, I unfortunately have had cases where the, tenant has has maintained the property and in, in, in less than uh, compliance with codes city codes and things of that nature or have their activities out there have run afoul of the police department so the, the law does allow us to continue with those just as before um, but those are and then of course there's a 30 days and the 60 day notices but you can also reach an agreement where the parties sign an agreement where the tenant agrees to be out on a certain day. Um, so if you can do it, and, and if it takes cash to induce that kind of a thing, a cash for keys type of agreement, that's another very effective means of you know, ending the relationship. My favorite story about cash for keys, um, this, is, this didn't involve tenancy, but um, Bank of America ha- uh, was listing a property with me in a condo complex. And those condos were running about $40,000, so not very much. Um, They gave me $3,000 to give to somebody to move out. They were so happy. I mean, that was, their rent was probably five or $600. And so to get 3,000 was amazing. What was funny is every time I walked through that, that complex, Everybody came out to see me. They were so nice to me. <laughs> they thought it was me giving the $3,000 away. <laughs> Surprised you didn't have security with you. Uh, no, no th- these people would have taken care of me. They, they were happy with me. All right, with that, we got to go to our next commercial break. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 ESPN. Oh. 
Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and here visiting with us today is Louis Coronado. He Good is morning. a local attorney who works with tenants, works with landlords, and helps us communicate. And um, I guess if there was total communication, you wouldn't have a job, right? It's yes. when communication breaks down that we need to go to you. Yep, and landlord-tenant law, family law, all kinds of law. That's lack of communication. <laughs> um, a few months ago, I had a situation. I had two people who didn't pay their rent on time, and um, so I try to communicate. Give them a call, send them a text. Um, one person never responded. So they ended up getting a three-day notice to pay rent or quit. I, I, at some point, you got to start the legal process. The other tenant did not get a three-day notice, but that's because she called back and, and communicated what was going on. And, hey, I'm human. I got a heart. And I know that was a one-time family emergency. So I worked with them, and I got paid eventually. So communication is really important. I agree, 100%. Um, you know, it's, it's in most cases, you, these evictions go through the entire process. I ain't ever hear from the tenant all the way through the entire thing. I, I just, it kind of befuddles me and amazes me because I'm surely there would have been some sort of resolution. In fact, just because one is served a, an eviction notice and then ultimately an eviction actions filed with the courts, oftentimes these things can be resolved where the tenant gets to stay in there and they work out something. So had it been a phone call, they could have avoided the whole thing. Could you tell us the difference between eviction and termination? Well, I think eviction is used to talk about one, the three-day notice, or in this case, or currently it's the 15-day notice, because all that notice any kind of notice, 30, 15s, whatever it is, all it says in there is that this is what you have to do within this time period. And if you don't do it, then the landlord, excuse me, I don't, you don't like to use that term, but the housing owner, provider, housing provider is entitled to file civil action with the court. Now that civil action is technically called an unlawful detainer action. So for an attorney, I think of the eviction, the entire process of the beginning of the notice, the expiration of the notice, the filing of the unlawful detainer action, that process culminates in a judge signing an order uh, executing, having the sheriff execute the lockout. So after that judge signs that order, the, the order goes to the sheriff's department and they execute that lockout. So for me, the evictions is from the beginning of that notice to the final lockout date. All right. It, and I remember back in, I don't know if it was fifth grade, sixth grade, my first contract law course. You're oh. a lawyer too? <laughs> Uh, no. We, we could have used it, Don. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but every contract has to have a termination date. For example, if I write an offer to purchase a property for somebody, you, it cannot be open-ended. It has to have a termination date to make it a valid um, contract. But it, uh, and rental agreements are the same. So they're either for a one-year lease, two-year lease, or a month-to-month -month tenancy. But it seems like the state legislature is moving towards um, getting rid of that termination to it, where the tenants have the ability 
to stay as long as they want. Well, there's two things that that point brings up. One is that in most leases, even the, the year-long leases, there is a provision that typically says that if after the conclusion of the lease that nobody has given termination notices that as long if the if the owner accepts rent for the period following the termination of that uh, lease period that now the parties have entered into a month to month agreement all the terms of the lease the original one year lease are still in effect but for the t- uh, duration of it in other words all the other clauses attorneys fees uh, <clears throat> the amount of the rent and things of that nature. But in most cases, most diligent landlords, they're aware of when those leases expire. And, you know, long before they do, they enter into negotiations with a tenant to figure out what they want to do. Because in in most cases, it's probably more favorable financially for a tenant to sign a new one-year lease as opposed to going month to month because some provisions say it's going to go up higher because it's less secure of an income stream for the owner. Uh, I think the other area that you're talking about is uh, AB 1482, which was passed in in 2019, which precludes uh, landlords from terminating uh, tenancies without good cause uh, for those who have been there for more than a year. So that is something that we've had to deal with. It was broadened under AB 38, which was the the, um, law in September regarding the eviction moratorium. So now what used to apply to a few properties now applies to most properties. And essentially what AB 3088 does is says that if your tenant has been there for more than a year and you just simply want to terminate it, um, say for example, if you want to sell your house and no longer be in the rental market, you probably could do that. Uh, It does exempt single family homes from this provision but you should have already sent out a notice to the tenant saying you could do that or this house is exempt. And if you didn't send out that exemption notice, you are probably subject to this law. So So even if it is a single family residence, if you didn't put that in there, you didn't send out that form, then you could, you're probably part of the law, that you're not exempt. That's correct. Single-family residences were carved out as not being subject to this law. I think they wanted to protect the smaller property owner industry. Um, As long as that property is owned by an individual or an LLC, if it's owned by a corporation, then they are subject to the rent uh, control law. Um, But yeah, the the wrinkle even for the uh, individually owned single-family properties is that you had to have sent out this notice I can't remember. It's passed. I think it was July 30th or something to that effect. And if you didn't do that, you could be stuck. Now, we're not. I'm not clear as to whether or not we can get that notice out at any time. I do send them out. I put them now in in a 60-day notice. Where if I've got somebody who wants to sell their property, um, I put in this exemption notice in there, and I think that f- fulfills the obligation. So, and I could see where where we're going with this. So let's say. I want my son to move back to Fresno and I say, Hey, here's this house. You can rent it from me. Uh, can't really do that. If the tenant says, no, I'm not leaving. Well, and then we're talking about two situations where, okay, you've got the tenant who's been in there prior to the passing of, uh, AB 3088. And then you've got new, I mean, say you say you are going to enter into a lease today with a new tenant, but in the back of your mind, you think your son's been talking to you, I might have him move in next year. Um, and so you have to put 
that provision into the lease agreement, letting your tenant know that I may at some point in the future um, want to bring in a family member or myself. Maybe it's your little nest egg and you're going to, that's your retirement strategy, you know, shrink down and move into my old rental house. Um, under the AB 3088, you have to put that provision in the lease. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. It is not good cause. Um, hmm. And then, of course, the, the, the other wrinkle is that even when you have good cause, if it's no fault of the tenant, which would be the situation where you want to bring in your son, because that's not your, your tenant's fault, when there's no fault on the tenant on a good cause eviction, you have to pay his, the tenant's relocation expense equal to one month's rent. So if he's been there for more than a year, you're talking about having to give him a 60-day notice, and in it, it says, oh, and by the way, you don't have to pay that last month's rent because... I don't have good cause to evict you. And these legislators didn't think that one through because I here's a great story. And it seems like they do knee-jerk reactions, just like you said, that situation in San Francisco where a corporation uh, terminated everybody at the same time. That's That was a not a freak thing, but a one-time deal. All right, here's a one-time deal, but it's a lady moves out of her home uh, goes to a nursing, or not a nursing home, but a retirement home. COVID breaks out. Oh, and she leases out or rents out her her home. Uh, goes into this retirement home. COVID breaks out. She wants, she doesn't want to be there where there's no visitors. She wants to move back to her home, but she had to pay a lot of money to uh, to terminate the tenants, and she couldn't afford it. So it's like, I don't think they all thought this through too well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you have to consider whether or not uh, to put a house on, into the rental market. You have to be aware of what the restrictions are. I mean, certainly, even before, you couldn't just, once you re- lease the property out, you, you've given that tenant the exclusive right to possess that property, exclusive of you, but for certain accepted reasons. Now those, those uh, exclusions rights to use are, are a little bit stronger, you know. And I understand in some cities like San Francisco, um, the, once you put something onto the rental market, it's almost like you have made that a permanent rental. Uh, to take it off, to, to use it again for yourself or to if you wanted to sell it, there's so many restrictions. You may just need to rent it forever. Yeah, the, the Bay Area and L.A. have got some rent control measures that are pretty daunting. I don't really understand all of them, but I understand it does take a lot of money to terminate, if at all. Um, but they have, they're dealing with very extreme situations there, and I, I don't know whether or not that's the best way of doing it. Yeah. So we had a person on the show. She was a property manager in Santa Monica where they've had rent control there since 1978. I said, oh, that's funny. 1978 was the first year that I rented out of place so we compared what happened both rents ironically started out at 375 dollars a month so my rent for the the house here was 375 uh hers was 375 also but they also started rent control there in the 40 some years the rent um here in fresno has gone up to a little over a thousand dollars the market rent probably about eleven hundred dollars market rent there went from 375 to forty two hundred dollars a month 
and that's with rent control. And here was, here's why she said, we have to take that two and a half percent that we're allowed. We have to take it every year because you lose it if you don't use, if you don't use it. So there, there with, with that rental I have, there's been times I've gone years and years, even decades <laughs> without raising the rent because they were good people wanted to keep them. Um, so the rent control obviously doesn't work when the cities with the highest rents are the ones with rent control and have had it for years and years. So with that thought, we're going to our next commercial break. Stay tuned to welcome home radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we are back here with Louis Coronado, an attorney that specializes in rentals. Good morning. Good morning again. Yeah. We, and we've had quite a show so far with um, uh, talking about the just cause evictions, uh, the basics of landlord-tenant law. Uh, and I learned something from you today that there is a shift from being a housing pro- landlords being a housing provider to looking at them as a social service provider. And um, hmm, that'll be one that we need to talk to our elected officials about. And it's like, do you, maybe the expectations are too high for, for a landlord um, to, to be able to provide all these social services too. So um, just my little commentary there. Speaking of commentary, here, let me throw out some statistics that I ran into this week. In the Fresno zip codes, I'm amazed. 75% of the single family residences, 75% are owner occupied. Only 25% are uh, absentee owners, meaning, uh, well, uh, they, they rent them out. And that was a surprise to me because I've always heard that owner occupancy rate is around 50-50. And, and maybe what that is, is that there's so many people that are in apartments, multiple units. So we are just talking about single family residences, a detached home. And, and this surprised me too, this number. There's 126,800 single family residences in the Fresno zip codes. There is another 35,300 in the Clovis zip codes. Um, And these numbers are pretty close together. Clovis does have a higher owner occupancy rate of 82%, uh, but Fresno at 75, hey, 7%, that's pretty close. Um, And I think that shows you the the mode of, of, the residents here in the Central Valley, they do like home ownership. They do, uh, and, and they also like single family residences. Um, I know there's legislation pushing us to go towards the row houses that you see in San Francisco. Um, I don't know that that's what the Central Valley really wants. Um, I, here's a question for you, Louie. As you do unlawful detainers, also known as evictions, are most of them in single family residences or apartments? What would you say? 
I think I get a larger share of individual property owners. I do uh, represent them directly as opposed to a property management company. If I'm dealing with a property management company, it's more likely to be the apartment type uh, mm-hmm. properties involved. Um, but I'm in- I was curious about those statistics uh, you're just reading off. I have a, a daughter who's 29 years old and she's one of those millennials, if you will. And I've always heard, whether it's true or not, that these folks are not necessarily uh, motivated as much as we were when we were growing up that, you know, having the, the house and the dog and all that. So whoever told you that they're right. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that has also been a discussion at the national association of realtors. How do we get the millennials excited and motivated to buy a home? Is it, I'm not sure what the reason is. I don't know, maybe because they lived through the 2007, 2008, you know, whatever you want to call that great recession. Uh, and, and so they've gone through a lot of physical hardship and certainly this pandemic, you know, they're a little bit shell-shocked when it comes to forking out some money, you know, and maybe not too certain about their future. So I, I don't know. I talked to my daughter. She doesn't seem to be too paranoid, if you will, but uh, I guess perhaps deep down there might be some hesitation on her part to pull the trigger. Yeah. Another, but here's another problem and a possible solution. So another problem is there's not a lot of homes for sale. Um, there are a lot of baby boomers that don't want to move because maybe they bought their home 30 years ago and they're, they're enjoying a very low property tax base. If they wanted to move to Sacramento or they wanted to move to even to Riverstone or to Sorrel Viejo in Madera County, they will now have to be reassessed for the new purchase price. Even though maybe they're moving to a smaller home, maybe, uh, but it's newer, so it's going to cost more. They're going to lose their property tax, um, uh, the property tax basis that they have of maybe, maybe they're paying $2,000 a year. If they move, that could jump to 5000 now, now you're looking at a uh, $3,000 a year or $250 a month increase in property taxes. However, as of this week, it's official. Prop, Proposition 19 did pass, and it's called the Tax Portability Act. So the, now you can move that tax basis to another county. You can uh, now move it for a higher-priced home. And um, you can now move it more than once. So if you had to do two moves over a 10 or 15 year period, you could do that. Whereas previously you could not. The previous law was you could move it once. It had to be for equal or lesser value, uh, which might mean you have to move into a two-story condo, which isn't so, so good. So people stayed in their homes. They didn't move. This should open up this should open up um, inventory and allow the, the millennials to, to buy more. So you want us old folks to get out of the way. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm there with you. <laughs> Louie, I want to thank you very much for coming down here today and sharing your information with everybody. And um, I'm going to remember a few of the things you said. Um, tune in again next week. We'll be back at 9 o'clock once again, 9 to 10. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Louie, and thank you to all our listeners.